Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Old Providence Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. What a blessing it is that God has given us this time together, certainly on such a cool day outside. It's nice that we have a good, warm space and this opportunity to worship. And I welcome you, whether you are a lifelong member or maybe you're a first-time visitor or somewhere in between. It doesn't matter. It's the Lord that has brought you to this place this morning and he has brought you here to worship him, for he alone is worthy. Now, before we begin, let me just first point you to your bulletin. And speaking of your bulletin, you need one. The reason you need one is, we, as you see, there's no hymn books, Bible song books in here. The words to all of the hymns and, and Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, even our scripture passage is right here. So if you do not have a bulletin, be sure to grab one. Uh, Finley has several in the back, so please get one of those. Um, so that being said, it, what's actually in your bulletin is important too. Lots and lots of things are going on. Lots of things are starting back, like our daily devotionals resume tomorrow morning. Um, at 6 a.m. they will be available on our Facebook page and on sermonaudio.com forward slash Old Providence. Also, Wednesday evening prayer meeting and Bible study starts back Wednesday at 6.45. It's from 6.45 to 7.30. Um, youth group resumes tonight at 5.30 as well. Little Lambs one week from tonight. So make note of all these different things going on. Now, for the obvious, speaking to the obvious, the fact that we are in here this morning as opposed to next door. As I said last week, let me thank you in advance, and you're already using it this morning, but thank you for your patience as we make our way through this hopefully short time together. And also, I want to get ahead of something. As many of you already know by now, a discovery was made this past week, and that discovery was the flooring underneath the carpet in the sanctuary. Um, the doors will be open after the worship service. I'd encourage you to go in, have a look, but be careful because there's construction going on in there. Um, there's been lots of different things that people have said in light of this discovery, like, oh, are we doing this? Or are we doing that? I just want you to know that the session is having a special meeting at 2 o'clock this afternoon to consider things. We have heard your cries, okay, just letting you know. Um, so we are meeting at 2 o'clock, and we'll consider the next steps to take. Now... Aside from this, as we continue to pray um, for the Gordon family, for the Steele family, with, with Bobby and Laura's passing, we also need to be in prayer for Corey Stogdale. I've learned this morning he is having surgery this coming Wednesday to have his neck fused. So we need to be in prayer for Corey. That will be Wednesday at UVA. Um, as far as the worship service goes, it is a little bit different. You can see the order of worship in the bulletin. Hang in there with me. I will probably make mistakes this morning. Hopefully not at the 11 o'clock service too, but probably at the 9. But hang in there. We will get through this time together. Because it's the 9 o'clock service, we do have children's church, right? And children's church will be dismissed after the second hymn. So be aware, children's church, and just right down this door after the second hymn. Also, we have nursery, but at the 11 o'clock service, we won't. So keep those things in mind. Now... There are other things going on, but again, let me welcome you to Old Providence. What a delight it is that the Lord has given us 
this time together to come and worship him. Let's prepare our hearts for worship now as Donna leads us in the prelude. call to worship this morning comes from the 47th Psalm and it says, clap your hands, all you peoples shout to God with a jubilant cry for the Lord. The most high is awe inspiring a great King over the whole earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses for us our inheritance, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God ascends among shouts of joy. The Lord, with the sound of a ram's horn, sing praise to God. Sing praise. Sing praise to our king. Sing praise. Sing a song of wisdom. For God is king of the whole earth. He reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the peoples have assembled with the people of the God of Abraham. For the leaders of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. As I read just a few moments ago in the second verse, it gives us the reason to praise, the reason to clap our hands with joy, the reason to come before the Lord. And that is in verse two, that the Lord, the most high is all inspiring. As we enter into this time that the Lord has called us into, that the Lord, every event of your life has built to this moment as he has worked all things to bring you here in his sovereignty, in his old Providence at Old Providence. Do you take the time to consider who this Lord is? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Ancient of Days. The God Most High. Do you take the time to bask in awe and wonder at his magnificence? I pray that you do. But in the event that you've been bogged down by the toils of this world, the Lord has given yet another opportunity today right now to dwell on his magnificence. And let us do just that. Please now stand with me and take your bulletin insert. We're beginning with Bible song number 209, Universal Praise, which is the 100th song, but the very first, Universal Praise.
Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we praise you that you have called us to this place, that you have brought us here. It is our desire that this time would be pleasing to you. So do please guide us now by your Holy Spirit as we lift up songs of praise, as we pray, as we go to your word. We praise you, Father, and we stand in awe in your presence. Thank you for calling us here. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. And we also pray as he taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And my friends, as we say the Apostles' Creed together, there's a reason I've left you standing. It's not my first mistake in this order of worship. It's really not. When the Apostles' Creed was given, it was one of those things to set apart those who affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. Those who affirmed the orthodox teaching of who God is as revealed in Scripture. And they stood when they said, I believe in God the Father. So now... As we're standing together, let me ask you, and as we confess the Apostles' Creed, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed. And you may be seated as we continue in worship by singing hymn number 275. Just turn the page there, and you'll find it in your instrument. Amazing Grace. Oh, uh-huh. 
now we come to the portion of the service for the 9 a.m. where children may be dismissed for Children's Church right down this uh, stairway right here with Miss Amanda. She's standing up. But as they are being dismissed, let's now take this time to consider who our Lord is, who has called us to this place, and consider as we come before His presence what we might confess, what we might consider. So let's take this time to go to our Lord in silent prayer, after which I will lead us in the pastoral prayer. But let's go to our Lord now. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, whether it is in the 47th Psalm that we have heard this morning that speaks of your being the most high God, awe-inspiring, how you ascend among shouts of joy, or perhaps it's in the hundredth which we have lifted up in song that tells us that you are good. Oh, that you are so good, Father. And you have made us the sheep of your pasture, your people, the, the sheep of your pasture. Whether it's these, whether it's from what we will see later, all of these point to your magnificence, your glory, how you alone are worthy of praise and honor. And as we consider who you are, let us not be so short-sighted. Let us not be so distracted. Let us not be so foolish that we do not consider who we are, that we are sinners saved by grace, that we are not perfect, that we are in need continually of going to you, not in order to earn your favor, not in order to secure our salvation again and again, but instead, because we belong to you, you call us to come, <coughs> confessing our sins, Remembering those things that, that we need freedom from, those things that we need forgiveness for. So, Father, please do forgive us. Forgive us for those things that we do that we shouldn't, the things that your word forbids. Forgive us also for those things that we don't do that we should, those things that we ought to do that we omit. Oh, Father, as we follow the pattern of this world. It's so easy to just focus on ourselves and our wants and our desires. And it becomes so easy to turn away. Yet we praise you that you hold to us, that you hold fast to us. We are prone to wander. But you are so faithful. <clears throat> Give us grateful hearts as we consider your faithfulness. Not only in light of, of our, our, our eternality, not only in light of our relationship with you, but in light of what we face on a daily basis. The last several weeks have contained lots of different things, Father. We have lost loved ones. We pray for the Steele family. We pray for those in the Gordon family related to Bobby and Laura. We thank you for, again, good long lives, well lived, 92 years old, 101 years old, all testimonies to your faithfulness. But we pray that you would give comfort and peace as their families mourn their loss, but also the assurance that you are good to your word. 
We think of others that are struggling in other ways, medically speaking even. We, we pray for Corey even now as his surgery is coming up Wednesday. We ask that the surgeon's hands would be skilled, that this procedure would provide relief, that there wouldn't be any sorts of complications, but instead that you would work through this in a mighty way. Prepare him as he prepares for this time and his family as well. We praise you for things like modern medical technology and, and, and that so many wonders can be worked. It all points to you, Father, and your love and your mercy. So give us that mindset. As we think about others that are struggling in other ways, whether it be with sin that are in need of correction and you drawing people back to yourself, whether it is weariness and people need encouragement, whether it's just living life and getting busy and forgetting you, Draw us back to yourself again and again. And we pray this not only for ourselves here at Old Providence. We pray it for your church universal, for we all have the same calling to be your lights in the world. Oh, Father, let us be about your business as we seek your face. And as we consider the world around us, a world that is so lost, a world that is wandering and wandering, we pray that the light of Jesus Christ would shine forth, that many who do not know you would come to know you, and the world itself would be changed as a result. We know this is not too tall of an order, for you have done this throughout history. Please, may the winds of revival blow, even now. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you very much, choir. How precious thy thoughts are to me. And I wonder, have you ever dwelled on that phrase before, to think of the things of God, to dwell on the things of God? I hope that you have. Let me ask you something. Let me warn you, you may have to go back far into the recesses of your memories. But do you remember the first film you saw that really made an impression on you? I don't mean the first movie that you watch like any other. I mean the first film that really stuck with you. And maybe it's for good reasons, right? Like it was something fantastic that you saw. Or maybe you'd never seen anything like it before. I've read that at the time for many, The Wizard of Oz, right, fit that bill because of its transition from black and white to color when, when Dorothy found herself in Oz. I've heard the same thing about the Ten Commandments, right, that, that portion where Moses parted the Red Sea in the burning bush apparently those were, were visual effects that previously didn't really exist. Incredible stuff, right? Or maybe it's a film that made a real impression on you for not so good reasons. Maybe it was something really frightening or violent that stuck with you. Think about Jaws. Before Jaws, who could have known that two musical notes could possibly be so powerful, right? da da or when you're in the ocean, right, you ever been to the beach and, and you're just having a good time and, and somebody says, da-da, it, it, it does things to you, right? Well, I'll tell you what mine was. It wasn't Jaws. I wasn't born yet, but I remember the first film that made a real impression on me. And I'm going to tell my age here. I was eight years old in June of 1989, okay? A film that I had been looking forward to had finally come out. And you all know movies were different. At, at that time, even 20 years ago, movies were different. There wasn't this just blockbuster thing every single weekend, that sort of thing. It took a while for a real you know, a film that had been hyped up to come out. I finally got to see the film, and I got to see it in a theater. Now, if any of you are film junkies, you may know what I'm talking about. It was Batman, okay? Batman, the 1989 Batman, the one with Michael Keaton playing Batman. Jack Nicholson was playing the Joker. And there were lots of reasons that film stuck with me. I mean, it was a blockbuster, right? It, again, at the time, there wasn't a superhero movie coming out every other weekend like there is now. Tim Burton, you know, that wild director was the one who directed the film. Prince did the music, right? I mean, for my generation, Batman is one of the peak examples of just glorious cinema movie making. And I loved it. And all of my schoolmates loved it, too. Uh, you know, what eight-year-old boy doesn't like a hero like Batman, right? But it wasn't the heroics of that movie that left a lasting impression on me. I mean, it wasn't the special effects either, though the special effects were really great. One scene 
in particular stuck out with me. And it stuck out so much that this past year at Christmas, when I saw my brother, because my brother's six years older than me, he quoted this scene and, you know, like that, my mind immediately went to it. That's why it was so fresh in my mind as I prepared for this morning. But one scene stuck out and it left an impression on me. It's a scene where Jack Nicholson, right, he plays the Joker. He decides he's going to poison Gotham City with this chemical solution he's come up with called Smilex, right? It's his own devised poison. And it, and it kills people, but they die with a smile on their face. And the scene is when they're reporting on it in the news, and, and the news anchor, the lady at the evening news, she starts giggling a little bit. And then she just, she eats it right there, right? And she's got this big, and as an eight-year-old, it was like, whoa. I've never seen anything like this. But also something that sticks with me, and my brother was, was joking about that, which isn't a good thing to joke about, but nevertheless, it stuck with me so much that here I am, you know, I'm not going to do the math, but I'm 42 years old now, and, and it's left a lasting impression on me. But what also stuck with me from that movie is not just the poison, right, the Smilex, Chemical X, Brand X, whatever. It was the first time I ever remember hearing this term, and the term was antidote. Right, So the Joker came up with the poison, then Batman, of course, he's the hero, right? He sets to, to work on coming up with an antidote for Smilex, for chemical X. And that concept of antidote stuck with me. Now, you can have something like a poison that will debilitate you, but the antidote can make you well. Or a poison that can kill you, and the antidote can give life instead. Now... It's with this idea of a life-saving antidote in mind that we come to our text today as we once again find ourselves in the book of Philippians. So go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not, I hope you do. If you don't have your Bibles, the text is, is right here underneath Amazing Grace that we just sang. But go ahead and turn there with me. Now, as you're turning there, I realize it's been some time since we have been in the book of Philippians. We broke for Thanksgiving Sunday, right? And then... We really entered into the Advent season, so we've had a nice, somebody gave me a term this week, intermission, which I like that term, right? We've had a nice intermission, but it's time to finish our study, and we shall, Lord willing, over the next few weeks. But as you're turning to Philippians 4, where we left off last time was in the beginning of chapter 4, where very clearly Paul is beginning to wrap things up in his letter to the church in Philippi. He's offered some instructions that are of a personal nature, uh, you know, involving specific people, connected to particular people. But then he gives commands. And I, I say Paul, but as I've made note of many times, and this applies not only Philippians, but to the rest of God's word, this is the word of God. What we read here is what God is breathing out through Paul. So the commands that are offered are not Paul's, but rather they are God's commands. And the last time we were together in Philippians, we found four main commands, right? That at first, uh, well, excuse me, three main commands in chapter 4. And at first glance, right, these commands, they seem easy enough. The command of verse 4, which is to rejoice, right, okay. The command of verse 5, which is to let your graciousness be known. The command of verse 6, which is not to worry. Now, as I said, this seems easy enough at first glance, but if you really read verses 4 through 6 again carefully, you'd find that the commands are to rejoice at all times. At all times? You mean when everything blows up in life? You mean when things happen that I didn't see coming? Yes, at all times. And then in verse 5, let your graciousness be known 
to everyone. Y'all know how life works. There are some people that you can be very gracious to. There's some people that you just fit with them like a hand in a glove, no problem. Verse 5 says to let your graciousness be known to everyone. Really? Everyone? And in verse 6, do not worry about anything. As I've said many times, the scriptures do not exaggerate. When it says about anything, it means do not worry about anything. And that's when, as I preached on this the last time before Thanksgiving, I said, you know, there's lots of things that can come to mind. You mean I'm not supposed to worry about fill in the blank? I'm not supposed to worry about this major life event that's going on. I'm not supposed to worry about this medical diagnosis. I'm not supposed to worry about the fact that I have X dollars in my bank account. Yes. At first glance, these don't seem like difficult commands, but when you really dig in, eh, not so much. In fact, if you really dwell on what Philippians 4 says, you'll find that on your own account, these aren't just tough commands to follow. They're impossible on your own. But praise be to God, as we saw the last time we were together in Philippians, we're not alone, but instead we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us and that the peace of God makes the impossible possible. Now that's what we left off with the last time, the peace of God. But again, if we're honest, rejoicing always, we don't want to rejoice. That's not our go-to. Our go-to is to complain and grumble. To let your graciousness be known to everyone. Our our go-to is not graciousness, it's selfishness. It's strife, to use a doctrinal term, a theological term. Calvin, right? Total depravity is the terminology given to describe his theology that explains that we're born sinners. That we have this sinful nature that we've inherited from our first father. And that sinful nature makes our primary focus, makes us want to primarily focus on us. That's why the worrying thing is so difficult. Oh, oh my, how we like to worry. Isn't there, you know, we don't even like to worry. That's not a strong enough word. Isn't there a certain deliciousness to worrying? You might say, what do you mean? It just wrecks you. It, it does, but at the same time, worry does something for us. Worry lets us focus on the thing that we like to focus on the most. Worry lets you focus on you, Okay. That's what we like to do. But as we saw last time, God's peace changes this. This is not what we're called to do. God's peace changes everything, especially when coupled with the antidote to grumbling, complaining, anxiety, worry, backbiting. The antidote to burning one another down and and refusing to love each other. Instead, thinking poorly of each other. The the antidote again to worrying. So what is the antidote to these things? Well, I'm glad that you asked. You should be in Philippians chapter 4 at this point. Let's pray and then we will read. Our passage is very short today, but let's go to the Lord. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this time again that you have given us, that you have called us to. We need your help now, Father. We've needed it already thus far as we lifted up songs of praise and as we prayed. But now, as we go to your word, we receive the painful reminder of our deficiency. That this time that we are in is not about academic achievement. It's not about reading comprehension or any of those things. This is not an academic time. It's a spiritual time. And we need spiritual help. Without the illumination of your spirit, we will not see. We'll still be in the dark. Without the conviction of your spirit in our hearts, we will not be convicted. We'll just go our merry way. 
And Father, we, we desire to be captive to your word. We desire to be transformed by it, for the power is always your word. So please, work in us now by your Holy Spirit as we come to your word. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And we'll stop reading right there. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen and amen. Well, my friends, this is one of those Bible passages that doesn't require you to be some sort of biblical scholar. You don't have to be an expert in the original Greek or even in the English language to understand what has been said here. And the reason for this is that God, through Paul, he paints a picture for us here that's so vivid and detailed, right? God, through Paul, uses words that when we put them all together, they're so comprehensive in what they present that their meaning and implication really jumps out. And in their meaning and implication, I hope you see why I said what we're told here in verses 8 and 9 acts as an antidote to the poisons of ingratitude, grumbling, complaining, backbiting, gossip, envy, strife, worry, anxiety, fear. And I could go on and on, but I hope that you... Get the point. Do you see why these verses are the antidote? Digging into what we've just read, verse 8 starts out with finally, which is sort of like therefore. What do we do when we start with a therefore? We stop, we go back, and we see what the therefore is there for. Very much in the same way, if you start out with finally, you need to go back and see what the finally is there for too. We've already done this though. Remember, we talked about the commands given in the previous verses, which is where we were the last time. And it's in light of these commands that God, through Paul, tells us that that we've just read. It's in light of these that we're given verses 8 and 9. And consider what we're given here. Again, it says in verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters. Again, I, I mentioned at the start, very clearly Philippians is being wrapped up here. When you see a term like finally, it points to that. But also it's a conclusive statement. It's in light of everything else. Finally, brothers and sisters. And Paul uses that term of familiarity, right? He knows these people. Remember, he he planted the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey. But that being said, he, he continues, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Now, If you've heard this passage again, and hopefully if if you've read this passage again, and you're still wondering, if you're still saying to yourself, antidote to complaining, grumbling, what's he talking about? If you're still wondering, consider the command here to dwell on these things listed. The true, the honorable, the just, the pure, lovely, commendable, uh, excellent, praiseworthy. In verse 8, God through Paul. Commanded the Philippians, and by extension, because this is God's word for God's people, you and I get the same command to dwell on these things. And that word is important. 
to meditate on these things. To have these things, not as passing fancies in our minds, not as something we occasionally think about. No, instead we've been commanded to have these things at the forefront of our thought, our vision. That these are to be the things that determine our focus. These things, truth, honor, justice, purity, loveliness, etc., This is to be our mindset and what shapes the world around us and how we look at it. And, as a result, how we as God's people conduct ourselves. These things should be the go-to. Let me ask you, you got a go-to? I bet you do, in fact. We're we're creatures of habit, right? And and, and I sense the something's not right because you're not in your pew this morning. I get it. I'm with you. When the choir was singing, I was like, man, I I really need my little thing to sit down on like I have it. And it just didn't feel, and even this pulpit, there's a piece of sandpaper in here from 1906. They used this, I think, in the last sanctuary. I don't think the minister then was six feet tall, right? Because I feel like it's all the way down here. We have our go-tos that make us feel comfortable. Maybe you have a go-to if you've got a headache, right? Oh, I get a headache, I always take... Two Tylenol and, you know, whatever. Maybe you have a go-to for, for the food that you eat. You know, I, I'm a ballpark, non-beef frank guy, all right? I'm, don't give me the beef hot dogs. That's like cow pudding. I want pork and chicken and turkey and everything but the squeal, okay? I have a go-to for that. You have go-tos for things. But what this is really getting at here, this list of things, the true, the noble, the pure, the commendable, When it comes to how we look at the world, when it comes to how we conduct ourselves, these are to be our go-tos. Now, if you're still wondering about how this is the antidote, think about the implication of that. If at the forefront of your thought is that which is true, well then, that means that you're going to be on the lookout for lies, doesn't it? If you're concerned with the truth. It means you're not going to fall for worldly wisdom rooted in the world's lies. It means that you'll reject the world's remedies and solutions and instead focused on Christ. Why? Because he's the way and what? He's the truth. And he's the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. It, It means that you won't be easily deceived by the devil who is always looking to lead you and all of us astray. The next in verse 8, whatever is honorable, if at the forefront of your thought is that which is honorable, if your focus is honorable, that means you'll do all you can to stay away from that which is not honorable. That means the way that you talk should be different. The way that you behave. The things that you enjoy. The things you say to others, even more importantly, When coupled with that which is true, this means that the things that you say to yourself will change if you're focused on that which is honorable. And oh, how important that is, for aren't the lies that we tell ourselves the worst ones and the most destructive? Now are you starting to see why verses 8 and 9 are the antidote? Take the next, that which is just. Oh my, how This is a big one, right? If you focus on justice, and no, I don't mean worldly justice, the social justice of the world. You know, the world around you would not recognize justice if it 
chained itself to a tree or, or laid down in front of vehicles on a busy highway. Right? The world doesn't get justice. I mean real justice on that which is justice and right. If you focus on justice, you're forced to evaluate not only what you do, but why you do it. And not only that, if your focus is justice, then it points you to a reality. A reality that can sometimes be extremely painful. But if your focus is justice, then you must see how the only hope you have is Jesus Christ, who is your justice, Christian. Because by his atoning work on the cross, he provided justification for sins. And without him, the only justice that you and I have coming to us is something my professor said in seminary. He said, the only thing we've got coming naturally apart from Jesus is to be in hell with our backs broke. That's justice without Christ. Justice apart from Christ, but justice because of Christ is that Christ took the penalty for sin for all those who trust in him so that by his works, by his perfect obedience, we are declared just through faith in him. And if you're focused on the forgiveness you have in Christ, well then, shouldn't that change the way that you forgive others? Didn't we pray just a few minutes ago? Forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors. That means we've said to God, we want you to forgive us the way that we forgive others. Yes, focusing on justice is important, my friends. If you're dwelling on that which is just and good, that changes everything. And, and, and the next three, and, and we could spend hours here going over all the implications of this, but the next three, pure, lovely, commendable. Oh, focusing on purity means not only seeing that which is counterfeit that the devil cranks out for what it is, it also means evaluating your own actions. Again, not just what you do, but why you do what you do. And to that end, lovely. Oh, it takes on a whole new aspect, doesn't it? As does commendable. How our world uses those terms and applies them in the worst way. Aren't some of the most wicked people considered to be the loveliest in our world? And aren't some of the most wicked considered to be the most commendable? And and aren't they commended? But for God's people, for us, we're called to be different. And for loveliness and commendability to be judged, not based on the standards of the world, but to be judged on all those things previously mentioned, on purity, justice, and so forth. And the last two there, and some people get these confused, that Paul is writing rhetorically here. He isn't suggesting that nothing is of moral excellence or, or praiseworthy. No, instead, when he wrote at the end of verse 8, if there's any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. When he wrote this, read this with an air of pleading. Similar to, to really chapter 2 is a good example. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united. Right, it's that same tone that we find here at the end of Philippians where he's saying if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, those are the things you're supposed to be focused on. It's rhetorical, you see. Absolutely there is moral excellence exhibited chiefly in Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience. Absolutely there is that which is praiseworthy. God alone is worthy of our praise ultimately, but the works of his hands... There's an air of pleading here. 
Why? I believe it's because Paul is pleading that the Philippians would break free from the shackles of the world around them. The world that substitutes truth with lies. That instead of true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent and praiseworthy, instead of these things, the world twists all of these things. And because that's what Paul is doing here with the Philippians, as this is God's word, this is what God is doing for you and me today. He is calling us through his word to dwell on these things. Instead of having your focus on these things, what would the world have you focus on? Again, just take the opposite. The world would have you focus on lies, the dishonorable, the unjust, the corrupted, the vile, the reprehensible. Aren't these the things that the world has elevated? And what God through Paul is pleading for the Philippians and by extension for all of God's people to see, including you and me, is that out of all of those things listed in 8 and 9, if you take the exact opposite of what we are to dwell on, you find the world. And when you're focused on the world, when you have a worldly mindset, do you know what the casualties of that worldly mindset are? Go back to the last command. If you have a worldly mindset, you will not have a heart that rejoices. Quite the opposite. With a worldly mindset, you'll be a grumbler like the rest of the world. Because you'll only be focused on yourself. If you have a worldly mindset, you won't let your graciousness be known. As Philippians 4 or 5 says. Instead, you'll be judgmental. You'll be closed off. You'll be critical. If you have a worldly mindset... As opposed to verse 6, it tells us not to worry about anything. If you have a worldly mindset, I tell you what. I've, I've said it to, to many of you. I've said it in visitation of, at the hospital when people are having serious surgeries or after something has happened. How does the world even put one foot in front of the other? If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, that God has ordained all things and is working through all things, if you don't believe that, I don't know how you can go outside. I think that's why the world is so crazy in part. The world is full of fools that have denied God. But aside from that, the world is as crazy as it is because people have no surety. Why do things happen? I, I don't know. It's just random, I guess. Why are we here? Well, I guess just evolution brought us here and we're just kind of doing our own things and we should just try to be happy. What is happy? Well, I don't know. Usually what somebody tells me that's trying to sell me something. That, that's the world around you. And the casualty of this is all these commands in 4 and 6. You want to be a warrior? Do what the world tells you to do. You want to be filled with fear and anxiety? Have a worldly mindset. Or you can take the antidote of verses 8 and 9 that we've been focusing on. If you say, well, well how do I know what's true and, and pure and noble and all the things listed in verse 8? Well, that's where verse 9 comes in. We, let's read it again. After making the appeal in verse 8, verse 9 says, Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. Now we need to be careful here. Verse 9 can be read a couple of ways. Some have made the mistake that Paul is saying here, Hey, just follow my example and you'll be good to go. Just trust me. Just follow me. Now, to a certain extent, what he has said here and seen in me, right there towards the end of verse 9, is important because he does point to the example that is offered. But that's not the thrust of what he's saying here. 
In fact, the real thrust of what he's saying here is, is, is the exact opposite of, hey, just trust me, just follow me. Instead, quite the opposite. In verse 9, Paul isn't just pointing to himself. He's pointing to the word of God that has been revealed to the Philippians through him. That's what he's talking about here. And so if you want to know that which is pure, noble, commendable, just, and so on, you will only know it ultimately through God's word. Therein is revealed what is just, what is pure, what is noble. It's God's word that is always the power of God, right? It, the, God's word is the sword of the spirit. It's the weapon the spirit uses to wage war within us against our natural selves, the, the old one living inside of us, our sin nature. It's the word of God that the spirit uses to cut through our pretenses, our preconceived notions, and instead point us to Jesus Christ. For as we consider the good, the true, the praiseworthy and the noble, is not Christ the ultimate to these? God uses his word to point us to Christ, the real antidote for all the devices of the world. And so I must ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? Not about him, do you know him? And before you say, oh yes, absolutely. Your knowing him and the validity of your relationship with him. I'm not saying it's based on this, but it is certainly shown by your love or your lack thereof for his word. Do you get what I'm saying there? not saying loving the Bible is what saves you. Jesus is who saves you. But whether or not you love Jesus is shown in how you love his word. For you see, Christ is the living word. And if you have no use for the Bible, as the author of Hebrews said in, in Hebrews 2, 3, and, and 4, you have no escape if you ignore such a great salvation as God's revealed word. You can't ignore God's word. So if you do not... And verse 6 promises that verse 7, it can be yours. Peace that results in praise and rejoicing. Peace that results in graciousness and love. Peace that results in confidence and surety and does away with anxiety and fear and worry. It is only in Christ that you will have this peace. So if you don't know him, turn to him. But if you do know him, dwell on these things, brothers and sisters. Go back and read verse 8 again and again and evaluate your life and ask yourself the tough question. Am I characterized? If you went to somebody that knows me, would they honestly be able to say, oh yeah, yeah, he's always talking about what's true and honorable and just and pure. That person focuses on the lovely. Would they characterize you that way? Or would they characterize you as a walking minus sign? Some people are like that. Aren't there some people in the world that can't be happy unless they got something to be upset about? You know people like that? Some people in the world, you can give them $1,000 and they complain that it's in hundreds instead of fifties, right? There are people like that. And sadly, a lot of them call themselves Christians. It looked like their best friend died and they were baptized in vinegar. Evaluate yourself in light of this. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, what do you dwell on? Make sure that your viewpoint, your focus is on Christ and the things of Christ, not the things of the world. And in so doing, you will have the antidote to the world's poisons.
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us, and we pray that again, by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us, that you would make your word real in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you that you have given us the antidote, that you have given us Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. And now as we close our time together, let us sing of that relationship that is ever so important as you turn to the back page of the insert and we sing Abide With Me, number 64. Please stand. Our goal, our desire should be to dwell on these things, but ultimately to abide with the Lord forever. Receive now the benediction. May the grace and the peace and the mercy and the love and the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be upon you both now and forevermore. Amen.